Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You for this opportunity that the blood of Jesus Christ has purchased for every one of Your own adopted sons and daughters gathered in holy communion today and in worship before You this morning. We acknowledge that it is Your grace alone that has brought us here, provided us safe passage, Father, not only from where we were to come to this building this morning, but ultimately because of the life-saving power of Jesus' blood, we celebrate our safe passage to eternity. We look forward today in this service to the power of Jesus' purchasing blood and what it purchased for us in eternal life. I pray this morning that we would be humbled and awed as we consider that the last prophet and priest, Jesus Christ, our Lord, has spoken in these last days. I pray that you would draw us close to yourself, Lord, through this time of study in your scriptures, through this time of communion with one another in worship, and also through the elements of your table. I pray that we would be brought, Lord Jesus, to a fresh realization with our physical eyes today and with our senses, Father, of what's ultimately real in the Spirit, that the shed blood of Jesus Christ and His broken body paid for every one of our sins. And so in You, Lord, we have precious life eternal. May You be glorified in this service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ask you to remain standing for a moment. If you have your Bible with you, turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 1. As you're turning there, just an announcement today, it's Communion Sunday, and at the close of this message, the table will be open for those who are believers in Jesus Christ to celebrate communion with us. But before we do so, we're launching a new series for our Communion Sundays this morning from the book of Hebrews. And so we begin in Hebrews and we'll read in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs." You may be seated. The great book of Hebrews opens with a prologue that should remind us of the opening of several other books. In my mind, the first that comes to my attention as we read these incredible words, so thick, saturated, and dense with meaning, is, of course, the book of John. The book of John opens with similar similar language, powerful, dramatic, ethereal, sweeping, trans-historical in scope. We read in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. 
And the life was the light of men. The light, the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And there we have the prologue of the Gospel of John. There's the prologue, if you will, the introductory statements of the book of Ephesians, which remind us in equally powerful language about the nature and work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 3, we pick up Paul's writing here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. There we have three prologues just to add one more, to give us an idea of this pattern of introduction in Holy Scripture, we turn to Colossians chapter 1. And here in verses 15 and following, we read again of the powerful implications of the gospel of our Lord. Verse 15, He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. The problem in the book of Hebrews that was addressed by the author, we're not sure who he was, but certainly we're reminded of many of the authors in Scripture as we read these dense and thoroughly rich words. The problem in the book of Hebrews was a certain spiritual amnesia that had likely plagued this church. They had forgotten the significance, the superiority, the priority, the primacy of Jesus Christ their Savior. And they were moving away from the anchor of their souls and their faith. And they were falling back into old patterns of thinking and behavior, it seems, as we read the greater context. So the question might arise to us, if you've ever felt yourself in that position, or you find yourself living in a cultural and maybe even a church context, where it seems like the hardness of the heart is a contagious disease that affects even the strongest of us, where we easily lose our first love, And that rock-solid commitment to Jesus Christ that we felt when we were at the starting gate of our race has now languished and we feel ourselves growing weary in well-doing and stumbling more forward than we used to 
more than we used to walk, or perhaps even sliding backwards, God forbid, in our goal towards the mark of the prize, as Paul said, of Christ, in Christ Jesus. So the question remains, how are we to be approached if we find ourselves in this position? Where do we start if we find ourselves dry as an individual or as a church? Where would you begin if you talk to a relative who gave you shocking confessions that they're not sure about where they stand now and all of the things that they had thought they held true and dear in their heart? Well, the author of Hebrews answers this along with Paul and John by bringing us to the priority of first things first by saying in Hebrews 1 verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And thus we are drawn back to the historical revelation of the Word of God in time and through time by these redemptive milestones that declare to us once again that He is, and He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. So where should we begin when addressing a people hard of heart, or a people drifting from their faith, or a church dangerously adrift from the anchor of their souls? Well, the author of Hebrews answers this question with this juggernaut of a prologue. This densely saturated bit of information that we read this morning has spiritual, has philosophical, has worshipful, didactic implications and priority all sewn up in it. This is a prescription for apostasy prevention. It begins with, and through the course of Hebrews expounds, and finally concludes with drawing the attention of the wayward church to the supremacy, the supreme value and authority of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Where do we begin? We begin with Jesus Christ as Lord when we find ourselves weary and well-doing. This church that was addressed in the book of Hebrews like our culture today was tempted perhaps to embrace a humanistic fallback position. They were still doing things that looked on the outward spiritual, but they were tempted to trust something more than Jesus Christ, something else than Jesus Christ in His finished work on Calvary. They were likely tempted to trust things that they could see, tangibly experience more than trust the Word of God that had been told to them by the authority of the apostles and had been written down by the prophets of old. May we heed this warning for the church immemorial. Because it troubles me to think if the church at the time when this letter was written, so close to the advent of Christ's incarnation, was so easily prone to drift, in what ways might we be more susceptible to losing our way now some 2,000 years removed from the historical reality of Jesus Christ incarnate? Yet it is comforting to know that the answer for the church then is the answer for the church today. The sufficient, infallible, immutable Word of God whose power never withers, fails, or fades but always will accomplish that which God intends. So the prescription for our own hardness of heart is the same as it was then. And we, I suggest, will retain, will demonstrate we retain ears to hear today as a church when we consider that Jesus Christ is and has and will always have the last word. 
His proclamation, His revelation of the kingdom come, His work in His own body crucified on Calvary, His resurrection, His ascension into glory is the final, complete, uncontested, irrefutable, omnipotent, incorruptible, creative, sustaining, and conclusive last word for us in Him. If you are a believer, ransomed and regenerate in Jesus Christ today, praise the Lord. This morning, as a heading for this message, considering this anatomy of prologue, that's my title for today, anatomy of prologue. If we examine the introduction to this great book, what do its parts look like? What are the parts of the introduction? If we could isolate perhaps five elements, what are things that we can take away and need to know and need to communicate to our own souls when we are in dire need of encouragement as a church? And five elements of biblical prologue drawn from Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 4 could perhaps be summed up in five summary words. Proclamation, revelation, creation, salvation, and consummation. First of all, proclamation, the Godhead and the incarnate and eternal Son. We'll go through these in some detail, but first, again, revelation, Christ, the prophetic crescendo. Thirdly, creation, Christ, the creator and the cosmic constant. Fourth, salvation, Christ and the multi-office of redemption. And fifthly, consummation, Christ and His inherent spiritual superiority. Reading again in Hebrews 1, 1, as we consider this proclamation, the writer declares, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. We continue to read something of the beauty and mystery of the Godhead, the Trinity. In verse 3, He, speaking of Christ, is described as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Certainly here, our thoughts and concepts and descriptions of God Himself, God the Son, God incarnate, and the eternal Son of God that are too high and holy for our small and finite minds to wrap around. But I would suggest to you the meditation of trying is great for the soul. It is indeed the balm of, re- of repentance if we find ourselves growing weak in our faith. So let us meditate some today on the proclamation of the author of Hebrews as he declares something of the context and the content of the Godhead and the incarnate and eternal Son. First of all, as far as anatomy of prologue goes, number one, I would suggest to you that we must presuppose God. We start in humble submission to the fact that God is and has spoken. Turn with me to Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6 includes, towards the closing of this book, the record of those who had faith. And we could say, 
one description of this list where people who were reminded of truths that the writer opens with in verses 1 through 4 and actually lived in faith that they were real and that they made a real effect on their lives. In verse 6 we read, And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. In the beginning of the book of Romans, there's a description of the sin-hardened heart of man as a suppression, a suppression of the truth in unrighteousness. No man has an excuse before God the Father as judge one day. No one. Because they knew God, but repressed Him in unrighteousness. We must come to God on His terms, not ours. The obstinate and the rebellious of our day say things like, they reserve the right to be skeptical until they have sufficient evidence to believe that a God exists. And thus they begin their approach for so-called truth by saying, I'm an objective blank slate. If you're real God, then reveal yourself to me. Or they may not go so far to assume that kind of personality on the divine. They simply sit back in a sort of intellectual arms-crossed posture, waiting for truth to dawn upon them. But in so doing, the Word of God tells us that they are just betraying their own rebellion. Because written on the consciousness of every human being, every human being, and every single one is made in the image of God, is an awareness of their smallness and an awareness of the greatness of God. One glimpse, one pause, one eye open to creation is enough to reveal this to us. Thus, in the book of Hebrews, it says, if we are to come to God, we must first confess that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. When we consider matters of weighty importance, when we consider ultimate truth, perhaps it could be said that what we presuppose, where we start, the posture of our heart betrays our highest allegiance. And for most of us in our sin, our highest allegiance was the same as Adam and Eve in their sin. It is to ourselves. We want ourselves satisfied first before we are satisfied with the idea of God. But indeed, we need to confess this as sin. We need to fear the Lord and understand that in fearing Him is the beginning of wisdom. This context is throughout the book of Hebrews. There's a calling of the attention of the people of God to an awareness of the fear of Him. There's a reminder of the stories of old in Sinai, for instance, where the glory and power of God was so revealed in truth to the people of God, that there was a thunderstorm of power and there was commands to not come close to the mountain lest you die. And in that experience, there was a clear, distinct revelation of the power of God. And that revelation remains to be known by everyone who will simply read it, the truth of it, in Scripture. So in first element of prologue, is to admit that God exists and that we 
are sinners. That the fear of Him is the beginning of knowledge. The proclamation that God is and is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him needs to be the very first thing that we confess before the Lord in our humility. You are God and I surrender. Secondly, under proclamation, there's a declaration from the author of something of the nature of God and the triunity of the Godhead. In my family, we're family devotions. We're going through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and there's a question, how many persons are there in the Godhead? Let's see if I've memorized it as well as my five-year-old. There are three persons in the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. These three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. There are three persons in the Godhead, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Where did the authors of that confession draw that language from? What was their source? Well, when they read passages like this in Hebrews, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. They saw that there was both a continuity in the Godhead, the same in essence, the same in substance, and there was also a distinction in the Godhead that God the Son, in the act of redemption, came and accomplished what we could not, the perfect sacrifice for sins. But upon completion of that act, he was seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Yet this God the Son is also indeed the radiance of the glory of God. And so we have the elements of the Trinity. We have the ingredients of something of an understanding of the mystery of the Godhead here declared to us in introduction in Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 2 verse 4 The Holy Spirit is introduced to us in His application role as far as redemption goes and Him and His work. In verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So we see in the book of Hebrews, at the beginning, in its proclamation, the Godhead is declared to us To be God the Son, God the Father. I should say God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's an interesting reference to just draw your attention to a little Hebrew way of speaking as the commentaries have drawn my attention to it this week. There's an interesting reference in the term majesty on high. In ancient Jewish culture, you might be familiar with a certain reverence and cultural Um, deference to the name of God which moved the authors of Scripture not to directly write the name of God but to use a term that is known as periphrasis which means to speak around. Para meaning around and phrasis meaning a phrase. So when we read the majesty on high it's indeed a reference to God the Father but it's speaking as to aspects of His being kind of talking around His character. And this language is also familiar to us as we've been studying Matthew, 
where we find in the book of Matthew reiterated over and over again the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God. Uh, assuming, or pre- presumably because the author, being Hebrew, was more inclined to use the term heaven rather than God's name itself. So there's interesting and rich history behind the language that is referred to here. But when the author says, he, he's speaking of God the Son Christ, sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high, he's speaking indeed of God the Father. And another helpful note along these lines comes from a different literary device that was relatively new to me as well. And this Literary device is called a a chiasmus. And uh, pardon this technical language, but I think you'll find it helpful. If in Scripture, as we found in the Psalms and going through them, there are ideas that are often paralleled by other ideas. The Bible will reiterate in slightly different terms to emphasize and to clarify a particular point. Well, there's a certain shape in chiasmus which does this which is kind of, well, I'll just describe it in this way. You have your first phrase or idea, and you could label it A, followed by a second phrase or idea labeled B, and then there's a third phrase or idea, in this instance, labeled B again, and then A again. So you have the first idea, and then you have another idea. Then you have that idea reiterated, and then the first idea. So you have sort of a symmetry there of ideas. And we found this to be the case in the Psalms. Well, hopefully I haven't confused you too much, but let me see if I can clarify by reading again these verses, verse 2 and 3. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now there's four ideas in that phrase. The first one speaks to the incarnate son. That is, Jesus had two natures. He was God, the, he was God and he was, he was fully God and he was fully man. So he was in his incarnate nature, he was God the Son, but he was coming through whom, it says, he was coming to earth and through whom he was appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So when Christ, becoming man, stepped onto the earth and received the rewards of his suffering, when he died on the cross, the author is reminding us of the nature of Christ as God in, or as the Son of man, if you will, to use the language of the Gospels. But then it's followed with this phrase, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So there's two ideas there that emphasize to us that this, the uh, second person of the Trinity, was eternally existent as God the Son forever before He came. And then there's an idea again in time, after making purifications for sins, He sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty on high. So if we follow the author's beautiful and symmetrical train of thought there, we see that Jesus Christ, in becoming man incarnate, was appointed the heir of all things in what He accomplished through Calvary. But we also see that this was the one who was also fully God, through whom the entire world was created. And also fully God in as much as He is the radiant glory of God in the imprint of His nature. And He indeed upholds the universe by the word of His power. But this eternal God and eternal Son came to earth in time to make purifications for sins and at, after which he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. These thoughts indeed are difficult for us to comprehend. These, this last explanation I got from a commentary by Philip Edgecombe Hughes. But as I read through the pages of men much smarter and learned than myself and their thoughts on these subjects, there seemed to be one thing at least they were agreed on. That when the Word of God proclaims the nature of the Godhead in the nature of Jesus Christ, it is so deep and so rich that just a short passage like this, four verses are worthy of our attention, our indefinite study, to think upon, to meditate on, and to remind ourselves of the beauty and the value. And here we have the first element of prologue, a proclamation of the nature of God, a proclamation of the work of the incarnate and eternal Son of God. And that moves me to number two. What would the author have us recognize in these elements of prologue to call us back and our attention back to our salvation and to faithfulness to Christ our Lord? Secondly, let's consider Revelation, Christ as the prophetic crescendo. Again in verse 1, we're reminded of a timeline, a timeline that includes, at its apex, Jesus Christ. The author says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Who might the author of Hebrews have in mind when he says the prophets, or he indicates the prophets of the past? Well, if we flash forward a bit in the book, we can turn to Hebrews 11. And there's a record there of the faithful, who indeed their example is written down for our benefit. And their faith in this instance is recorded and we see in Hebrews 11:4 by faith for instance Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith though he died he still speaks he still speaks the author of Hebrews reminds us that there was a prophetic voice that the word of God came through Abel Abel had a very simple installment into the Word of God, perhaps basic and minute at first glance, but indeed it is rich and it is in the timeline of redemptive revelation. He offered to God an acceptable 
sacrifice. What does that clearly teach us today? Well, the prophets of old recognized and proclaimed that only an acceptable sacrifice would satisfy the holiness of God and our sinful condition. We move on, verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken up, that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he was commended as having blessed God. By faith, in verse 7, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he, is commend, he commended the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I'm sorry, by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so we see here a message of judgment that was proclaimed through the prophetic role of Noah. When Noah was constructing this ark, he was preaching a word. He was prophesying to future generations that there is one and only one way of salvation. Only one truth and one life to escape the inevitable damnation that sin deserves. And that ark was finally, finally realized, as Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 4 tells us, in Jesus Christ, our Messiah. And those who are not in Christ are indeed condemned. And as the waters of judgment declared through the prophet and the prophetic act of Noah's time, that hell would encapsulate and swallow and destroy So it is true today. The message of Noah rings loud and clear and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it goes on and on. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went out to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder was God. The church that was addressed in the book of Hebrews needed to remember about the testimony of Abraham. They needed to remember that in spite of the nature of the kingdom of God being hidden to them in some way, they were in persecution, we read later in the book. They might have thought, if Jesus is Lord and can protect us, why has He not? They might have thought, Hey, we've heard this by hearsay. We're simply trusting the words of the apostles and those commissioned to send the gospel. We have not heard this message from first sources. Can we trust what we heard in our ears? This church needed to be reminded of the testimony of the prophets of old who long ago and at many times and in many ways God had used to speak. Abraham, for instance, who was called before he knew where he was going who took a step of faith following the Word of God, looking for a city that he wouldn't ultimately find in its consummate reality until he was glorified himself as the fruits of Jesus Christ's own resurrection. And yet he went. But who did the church most of all need to consider in the state of doubt and confusion? Most of all, they needed to consider Jesus Christ, their Lord, the prophetic crescendo in this entire timeline. You see, the message of the gospel had been moving from that message in Genesis 3.15 that there would be the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head 
to the testimony of Abel and his acceptable sacrifice, through the testimony of Noah, through the testimony of Abraham, until it came to its fruition in Jesus Christ. As the author says in verse 2, but in these last days, He, Christ, or God the Father, I should say, has spoken to us by His Son. We certainly have every good reason to stand strong and secure in our faith. Because what the prophets of old declared has been fulfilled and transcended in Christ. I am reminded of Matthew's gospel and record again in chapter 17, verse 2, where the picture of glorious fulfillment and transcendent of Christ as the final prophet is brought to bear in this imagery. It says in 17.2 of Matthew's gospel, He, Christ, was transformed before them, and His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, indeed two prophets of old, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking, and behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the clouds said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. We take the revelation of Jesus Christ in His his transfigured glory in the gospel record. And we see that community there of the prophets of old meeting with Christ. And it sends a clear message down through the ages to this church then. If you listen to Elijah, if you listen to Moses, you ought to certainly listen to Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And if God has revealed Himself in times past, in amazing ways, when the seas were parted, when eight were rescued through the flood, when God's favor was extended, when He sovereignly led Abraham, when He brought His children out in the exodus from Egypt, delivered them from slavery, gave them a constitution and a law, taught them of the significance of the Paschal Lamb. If there was anything significant, if there's anything to be drawn, then how much more Jesus Christ And we see in Him that everything of the past was fulfilled and transcended. We need to be reminded of this. That this Christ who has appeared to us in the pages of Scripture is a final installment in the prophetic record that brings to a crescendo the plan and purposes of God. And that's why the author says that there were former days in many ways in the past and long ago. He draws a distinction between that time in the time in which he is writing, verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Do you see that distinction in the historical record? There was the pre-Jesus Christ era of God's revelation, and then there is the post-Jesus Christ era. And those are the days that we gloriously inhabit as well. The last days. The days where Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, executing His will and intentions through bringing His gospel forward by those who, like Abraham, go forth in faith proclaiming that He is the champion of our souls, has made sufficient payment for our sins, and in Him 
is our hope, and in Him we will one day be rescued into glory, never to suffer or doubt or to experience pain ever again. Third element of prologue, creation. The book, that, this treasured work that we hold in our hands, the entire Bible itself, opens with its own prologue, of course. And we're reminded of the introductory statement to the canon. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You can see the correlation there. The prologue of the entire written record of God's revelation begins with a proclamation of God. It starts in the beginning and includes the record of creation. And so the author of Hebrews reminds us of first first things again. He says, again in verse 2, In these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, through whom... He appointed, or whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And notice this phrase, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ as creator and Christ as the cosmic constant, if you will, are declared in this prologue to this message to the Hebrews, to this church. Not only is Christ responsible for everything material that we can witness and creation near to our physical eyes and in the furthest reaches that we've explored so far through the, what technology affords us via the Hubble telescope and otherwise. When we look at creation, when we ponder the work of God's fingers, what are we to remember? This exists and is sustained by the word of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The same one who appeared as the Son of Man, who was born of a virgin, who proclaimed His kingdom, who suffered and died, who was falsely accused, who was murdered, yet was resurrected and ascended into glory and accomplished everything that God had predestined to come to pass. We must remember that the story began before time began. And indeed, time itself and everything in the material universe owes its beginning to the Savior of our souls. He is powerful to recreate us even as He is powerful to create and sustain the world. New creation is possible and it's prominently displayed and powerfully proclaimed Only and when we admit and we champion the truth that Jesus Christ is not only the creator of a new heart in relationship with the Heavenly Father, but He is indeed the creator of this entire world. When we begin to consider the basis, the foundation, and the bedrock of our faith, remember the book of Genesis and remember the power of our God evidenced in creation. And be wary, be wary, saints, because there are many heresies masquerading as science these days. 
who would seek in the enemy's intentions to shipwreck your faith. To shipwreck your faith. Remember, it is both Christ who creates and Christ who sustains. He is that cosmic constant that holds the universe together. Now, for all their ostensible good intentions, science and scientists are curious about the way things work, naturally so. And they can and we can discover through the scientific method certain causal factors of the relationships we see. But at the root, at the foundation, and at the chief cause is always and will always be Christ. And those who are faithful to Him recognize it as so. And those who are tempted to deviate from the foundation of everything, both spiritual and material, being in Christ need to hear the prologue of Hebrews. It is Christ who creates. It is Christ who sustains. I remember listening to quite a bit of talk radio in my uh, construction career. And there are scientists who claim that science can proceed while they deny God. Such as an absurdity, I would argue, in a different lecture. Nevertheless, they claim to do it. Well, these scientists are on a mission to find a theory for everything, some of them. I remember some of them pontificating about like string theory and things of that nature. And if they think that they can reduce all the causal factors of this universe to a piece of you know, paper like this with a bunch of facts and figures, boy, will they be surprised on Judgment Day. I hope, I hope that in that quest for knowledge is not denied the source of knowledge, the fear of God, which is the beginning, that nothing can exist and nothing does exist unless Christ creates and sustains the church needs to be reminded in every day and in every age no matter what the masquerading heresies are that Christ is the source and the foundation of all knowledge of all authority and certainly of our salvation number four elements of biblical prologue salvation itself Christ in the multi-office of redemption We find here in this short introduction, but so dense in meaning, at least three categories of Jesus Christ in His office. And you're probably familiar with them, prophet, priest, and king. In verse 1, when the author declares that there is a transcending prophet, there is a consummate prophet in Jesus Christ, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, in former times, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, we're reminded that Jesus Christ is indeed the prophet. The prophet of old, the prophets of old spoke of a time when their words would be eclipsed and fulfilled by greater measure. And the author of Hebrews draws on some of this language. He continues his admonitions in verse 5 by saying, For to which of the angels did God ever say? And then he quotes from the Psalms. Psalm chapter 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, he's quoting 2 Samuel seven fourteen. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. The context of that psalm's reference refers to a psalm that speaks to kingly authority, ultimate rule. And then the third reference in chapter 6, again, he brings the firstborn into the world and says, quote, let all God's angels worship him. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. And so the author has wisely and insightfully cited from the law and the prophets 
and Old Testament prophetic language speaking to kingly authority, and he's attached them all to Christ. Jesus Christ is prophet. He is priest, and he is king. We read further of his priestly role in our primary text when we discover that he is the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe of his power. And then note, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And only a priest can do such a thing. Only a priest, one who speaks to God on behalf of the people, can provide purification for sins. But this priest has done so by his own body and by his own blood. He has done so sufficiently in and of himself. And thus he is the priest that ends the priesthood of old. He is the priest that forever and for all time has provided the once and for all sacrifice that all who are in him now look to for salvation from their sins, for purity of heart. And then in that same phrase, we see this kingly implications, the magisterial office of Jesus Christ, when we find this throne room language coming to the fore. He, that is Christ, sat down, verse 3b, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And thus we have a revelation in this prologue of salvation in Christ, fulfilling the multi-office of prophet, priest, and king. And finally this morning, as we consider the elements of prologue here in Hebrews chapter 1, let's consider consummation, that is fulfillment or direction. A tagline I've added to this idea is Christ and His inherent spiritual superiority. When we read this language, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's language that tells us clearly and with vivid imagery that something has been completed. Something has been accomplished. A man sets about a task and he's busy through his day. And upon completion of his goals, he sits down. And this is the biblical imagery here. This anthropomorphic language, if you will. It's using human ideas and concepts and language to describe something of the work of Christ and its finality at the cross. Think of Calvary and the events of that very specific hour itself when Christ declared, It is finished. And this is the language here that we're reminded of. That it is complete. It is final. It is signed and sealed and delivered. It is consummate. It is sure. It is established. And it is foundational to our faith to recognize that Jesus Christ has completed His work for redemption at Calvary. And because He has completed that work, So history continues toward the completion of all of God's ultimate purposes and ends. And so we see that this direction of God's ultimate will and choosing moves even beyond the security of our salvation 
to the security of the new heavens and the new earth that we will appreciate one day. And this is a little bit more implied and perhaps in historical context, but when we continue to read in Hebrews 1.5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, there's this idea, at least in the historical record, as far as my studies afforded me, that the people he, were, he was writing to likely had a false idea of what the future would look like. They were likely given to certain harebrained notions and fanciful ideas of what the end would be. And we find often in Scripture that that's the case, and certainly in our own experience. And so these people were likely ascribing too much weight, too much glory, and too much power to other spiritual beings like angels. But the message right here in context to this church is remember that Jesus Christ is inherently superior to any and all and every other spiritual being or entity or reality. When we're addressing misguided notions of the future, we can most easily address them by moving our attention back to the prologues of of books like Hebrews and asking ourselves this question, is Christ central, superior, and featured in our hope for the future? Today, you can subscribe to probably 100 blogs that try to interpret the headlines of the goings-on of nations and powers and authorities and what that might symbolize and represent. Are we in the last days, the last of the last days? And what can Middle East conflict tell us in relationship to prophecies of revelation and so on? Well, a more important question than where does Saddam Hussein fit into John's prophecies is this. Where does Jesus Christ fit into John's prophecies? How central is the work and the lordship and the accomplishment and the finitude and the purpose and the ultimate consummation of God in Christ in our concept of the future? We serve a risen and ascended Lord and all history inevitably plays into His hand. And I don't care how powerful a nation thinks they are or how vast an empire extends, they are a mere pawn in the final work and purposes of Almighty God. Because when I read the book of Revelation, I see a picture of Christ as a powerful, conquering Lord with a sword proceeding in flames from His mouth and a robe that would blind you with light and a golden sash and feet firmly fixed on the security of all of God's predestined purposes through all all history accomplished in His very work And He has power to remove lampstands and to place them and to judge peoples, hold them accountable, to send the wicked into hell and to exalt the redeemed and to make them as pure and holy as He is by granting them white robes of righteousness. And let us never put our trust in anything else Let us never even let our attention be distracted and captivated by certain things that aren't as valuable, superior, preeminent, and foundational as Jesus Christ our Lord. And I think from the book of Hebrews and its author, if we focus our meditation in areas of Scripture and apply them like these four verses, we can have greater assurance that we will be standing 
if you will, on the right side of history in the victory train of Jesus Christ ruling and reigning with him when the after the last tear is shed. The last valley of trial is traversed through and the last relative is, has passed away. And even when we pass beyond this veil of tears, we can have faith that Jesus Christ our sure and conquering Lord, as evidenced by His finished work on Calvary, will bring us home to glory. In closing, let's read just two more scriptures in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 12, as the author so patiently, so graciously, and so powerfully leads this congregation in exhortation, He draws their attention back to the basis of their faith and there's a couple summary sentences that I think serve as a great capstone for the prologue itself. He says in chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Let's transition in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have so condescended to us to give us such pastoral advice right here written into the pages of Scripture. We confess that in our short-sightedness, we are often distracted and led astray by weights of sin that easily beset and hindered and also by waves of doctrine that sometimes blow across our path. But Father, we confess this morning that our sure foundation is our rock, Jesus Christ. And only on Him can we survive every storm of life, be it the mockery and the persecution or all of the discouragement and despair that is attending this life. I pray that you would bring us back to the foundation of our faith, the prologue of this book, and let us hang on to it, Lord, for as many days as you graciously give us Not only that we would stand strong and firm in our faith, but we could be an encouragement and an exhortation to others as this same book directs us to exhort each other daily so that we do not become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That we regularly assemble together remembering that Jesus Christ is our Lord and His broken body and shed blood is the essence and the substance of our hope. And because they are real and real to us, We need not fear the future. Thank you, Jesus, for these assurances that you have spoken. And thank you for upholding this universe and us by the power of your hand. May you be glorified in communion this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.